Welcome to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz, sponsored by our friends at the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty here in Washington, D.C., a program that cuts through the chaos and confusion in the culture today by talking to kingdom citizenship, bold biblical principles for a robust public Christian life. And now your host, Dr. Greg Seltz. Good day, good day, Washington, D.C., and friends of the program all around the country. I'm Greg Seltz. Welcome to Liberty Action Alert, where every week we try to cut through the noise and take on the issues, especially the public issues that matter to you, people of faith. We try to rely on the wisdom of the Word of God for the sake of the culture and the mission of the church, or as we like to say here at the LCRL, we're trying to put our temporal liberties to work for the sake of the eternal liberties of God for all. Today on the Liberty Action Alert, we are privileged to have with us John Stone Street, president of the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview and co-host uh, with Eric Metaxas of Breakpoint. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks so much. Good to be on with you. And Tim Gegline, our friend and longtime partner here in D.C., vice president of external and government relations for Focus on the Family. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. It's great to be with both of you. All right, guys. Um, What's going on in politics, or better, what's going on in our culture? Because, listen, as Christians, we realize there's always going to be a culture war in any culture with the church, because the Bible says that God's kingdom is not of this world, it's entered only through Christ alone. So our view at the LCRL is not whether we win or lose the culture war, but are we engaging it faithfully for the sake of the culture and the mission of the church? And I think that's what I want to talk to both of you about today, especially as we deal with this euphemistic law in Congress that is anything but the Respect for Marriage Act. So first to you, John, your book, A Practical Guide to Culture. And folks, you can get that this on Amazon uh, right now. Great book that actually goes through a lot of issues and, and, and roots it in the foundations of the Christian worldview and the scripture. But today, especially, I want to talk about culture. And you talk about it as the water in which we live and many of these secular, immoral or amoral issues as waves that are pounding us in that water. So talk a little bit right now about how we can put the Christian worldview to work, our faith to work for the sake of the culture and the mission of the church especially now as we just got hit by a pretty big wave. Yeah, no, it does seem like the waves are relentless, especially when it comes to sexuality and marriage. And that tells us a lot about kind of where the culture is. Culture is most powerful in what it normalizes, right? So, you know, if you've ever traveled from, you know, one country to another, you quickly, you know, start realizing how normal you think your culture is and how abnormal everything else does. I remember I took my kids with me, uh, one of them to Australia. And first thing she said when we got off the plane is they're driving on the wrong side of the road. But they weren't (laughs) driving on the wrong side of the road. They were driving on the side of the road that seemed not normal at all to her. And that's what culture does. Now, here's what's happened with marriage is that culture has normalized in so many different ways. And it it hasn't primarily been through the law. The law is a consequence of the big shift in how we think about marriage as being an institution that primarily serves adult desires and adult happiness, rather than an institution that orders our lives as men and women, particularly for the good and well-being of the next generation and of children, right? That seems like a small shift. Huge shift. Uh, Is marriage about 
what makes me happy or is marriage about something bigger than my happiness uh, that my happiness actually serves? And that is the idea that's been way upstream in culture and has Mm -hmm. now been reflected in this so-called Respect for Marriage Act. What it hasn't done is respected marriage. What this act does is embraces a completely different understanding of marriage and then calls that respect. Right. They just, in some ways, they just uh, sought to redefine it according to our whims or our wishes or our desires. And and Tim, you know, that's where I want to go too with this is for the church's involvement now in dealing with this issue, because this is a cultural issue, even more than it's a legislative issue. And and I I read from C.S. Lewis, he was talking about morals and cultures versus instincts and desires. And he was talking about how the morals of God, they're the thing that helps us decide between two instincts that might be at war with each other. And he said, you might as well say that a sheet of music is the same as the uh, the, the notes uh, on that sheet of music. And then he says, the moral law tells us the tune we have to play, our instincts or our desires, they're just merely the keys. Well, mm-hmm. we just radically redefine the music, if you will. And I think the church has a responsibility to culture. That's part of God's preserving work, even as we strive to share the gospel. So how do we get our people to regain that appetite for engagement? Well, yes, and to be less prosaic than that great theology and that kind of insight, a very good friend of mine said kind of euphemistically, remember, in all of the big questions, culture trumps politics. Right. He said that it's very difficult to imagine or to have, you know, a conservative government when you have a progressive culture. You know, if if a culture is coarsened and if a culture is in air quotation marks progressive, if the, the schools are progressive, if the churches are progressive, if the business elite is liberal, if the guys who make the movies and the pop songs are are liberal, our, our friends on the left, they are preoccupied with, uh, with culture. And I think that that makes it a very difficult uh, thing. You know, if you're trying to impact public policy and politics uh, every two years versus working every single day on the culture, it, it makes it very difficult. Well, let's just say it this way. I don't I don't even call them progressive. I think we've got to they do a they they're constantly demonizing and they're constantly uh labeling us in ways that that stop the conversation. I call them secular puritans. That's what they are. They're secular pietists, they're secular puritans and and they're statists. Uh I don't even call them liberals in that regard. And so it's a different religion that's coming down the pipe. And like you said, Tim, you're absolutely right. The politicians don't lead. They follow. And and, and again, we just saw that uh, this last couple of weeks for sure. Um, but I guess that's why I love your book, John, about how you teach us then to engage because God's word is a beautiful thing. Even God's laws are beautiful things, even when they say no to us. And And our young people seem to be they're being seduced by narratives that just aren't true, but they seem so compelling, you know, like sex, not marriage, career, not family, information, not wisdom, libertinism, not virtue, and self, not God. And I love how you address these, you know, what you say things like, don't buy the lies, recapture the wonder of God's story and take action. How can we reinstill in our people that even when God says, no, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, because his yes will blow your mind. 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think it, it, it's something we've got to realize is that Christianity is not just a a vision of reality that tells us everything that we're against. It actually right. is an explanation of reality that is bigger and better than anything else on the market. But I think that requires something else up front. You mentioned secularism, which I think is 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 a, is a, a probably a proper label for a lot of what we see in the progressivism that we see in the political and cultural space comes out of that right. kind of vision of reality that leaves God out. But you know, there are some outright attacks uh, on God that come from. The secularists, but I think the bigger problem is not a problem with them. It's a problem with us okay. is that we, we have believed, uh, from our secularist neighbors is that religion, uh, and Christianity is this personal private thing that is something that I use to make me feel better. It's, it's my own personal expression of faith and morality. And so it's not really something that deals with public truths about life in the world. And that's the power of a secular culture. And this has been in place since the enlightenment and keeps on going. And we could get into all the nerdy historical <laughs> philosophical stuff that I, I really enjoy. Right. But the, but the punchline I think is, is that secularism hasn't been very effective in presenting, you know, com- convincing proofs that God doesn't exist. It's been very compelling and privatizing God. In other words, not disproving him, but making him largely irrelevant to most of life in the world. And so now if God is not the author of reality, if he's a personal private thing that I use for my own meaning and purpose and my own sense of right and wrong and hope and so on, but he's not really the thing that defines reality. Well, somebody else has got to define reality or something else has got to, another narrative then becomes really, really compelling. And so one of the first things we've got to do is we've got to stop teaching the Bible to the next generation as a set of moral McNuggets. And I'm borrowing that phrase from Philip Yancey. It's just, you know, some good moral advice that you can take and it'll make yourself better. Now, it, the good news is, is Christianity does give you good advice and it makes life better, but it's an account of reality. It presents, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a framing of what is real, what is true, who we are as human beings. So I, I think, honestly, I, I remember being at a meeting years ago, Chuck Colson, it was actually the evening before he became very sick and went on ultimately to be with the Lord. But there was somebody in that meeting who stood up and said something along the lines of, we could just get all the Christians saved. We'd be in good shape. And I always <laughs> love that line. Yeah. Basically, I, I, I'd like to pick up on that point, if I may. Yeah, yeah. Um, a very good, a very good friend of mine here in Washington, who's a you know a very highly regarded, well known lawyer. He famously uh, said that his most important mentor, uh, John and Greg, said to him, "If you are ever uh, accused of being a Christian, let there be ample evidence right. that you can be charged guilty." You know, and I, I must say, Greg, in light of your question and John's response, in paying attention to those twelve Republicans who supported an anti-marriage bill who supported uh, an anti-religious uh, liberty uh, legislative trajectory. In light of our great dialogue, I think we can't miss this, this elemental question that John is, uh, is showing here. 47 Republicans in the House of Representatives voted to codify same-sex marriage into law. 47 Republicans in the House voted on an anti-religious liberty trajectory to undermine Ultimately, this question of the guardrails of ministry, uh, of paraministry, of churches, it seems to me, if you find a way to build a wall in opposition to the practical 
application of theology in the public square, where faith and public life do go together. They're not opposed uh, to one another. But if you if you seek in public life to build that very artificial uh, wall, what you end up with ultimately is the kind of uh, of country, culture, and civilization that's being that's being described here, and it's very foreign to the United States. That's that that's for sure. Well, you know, we stand for religious liberty. That's why we're in Washington fighting for this. But I've been an evangelist and a, and a pastor in New York City and South Central L.A. all my life. I mean, I've been in the middle of these kinds of discussions. And I I think Ryan Anderson wrote, I think, an, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, religious liberty isn't enough. And I think he's absolutely right there. Just because we have religious liberty doesn't mean we can't engage these questions. And if we, if we self- censor and and take ourselves out of the dialogue well we shouldn't be surprised when they finally make a law that says you're not supposed to be in the dialogue uh at all um and 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 folks just just to let you know our biggest beef with this legislation is not what your view of marriage is our biggest beef was the state has no business going this far to redefine all this stuff uh, they they pitted they pitted citizens of of uh, of conscience differences and legitimate conscience differences. They now pitted us against each other. They now said there's one view that is is legislatable and is 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 enforceable. And you folks who believe in that other one, you just you watch out. Now you be nice. And the reality is is this the biblical worldview and the biblical view of marriage is a blessing. It's a blessing for the whole culture. It's a blessing for everybody. We got huge issues in our urban centers, and they're all related to the breakdown of the family. Well, they just put another nail in that coffin. So again, John, back to you. Our, our people are not even in awe of God, you know, yeah. about what He has done in the narrative. And I love it this way. Chesterton said this. He said, "I used to hate the church." Well, I'm paraphrasing now. He said they always seem to be putting rules in place where I didn't want them uh, to go. He said until I realized that where those you know rules and uh, things were put in place, it was so freedom could run wild. And he gave us a totally different vision of the fact that God is the God of freedom. God is the God of life. God is the God of grace. And even where he says no, it's so that he can say yes. You know, I love that. That's the second thing you say in every one of these cultural engagements. You say, we got to retell this narrative. How can we do that in a better way, especially when it comes to, to this? Well, it has to do with treating Christianity and the Christian worldview as if it's true. I mean, you you right. said correctly <laughs> that the Christian view of marriage is a blessing, and it's right. a, but it's a blessing not because it's just kind of a strategy that you know people thought up and they happen to be Christians when they thought it up. It's a blessing because it's actually built into the fabric of the universe. Marriage is like gravity; it's not like a speed limit, and that's the real problem with this Respect for Marriage Act is that it doesn't respect what marriage is; it changes. Uh, it, or it takes a, other relational arrangements that aren't marriage, calls them marriage, and, and it just won't work. It's it's kind of like me saying, um, uh, uh, the Rockefellers are rich. I want to be rich. I'm going to change my name to the Rockefeller, to Rockefeller. so I can be rich. Yeah. <laughs> I can call myself a Rockefeller. It doesn't change reality. I can call all kinds of relational arrangements marriage. It doesn't change reality. And marriage is baked into the universe for the good and well-being of children. So the victims, uh, we always say around the Colson Center, uh, well, we, we didn't make up the first part, ideas have consequences. That goes to Richard Weaver. But we added bad ideas have victims. Right. Children are the victims, always the victims of the sexual revolution. All the that bad ideas, redefining sex, redefining marriage, redefining human, redefining male and female, redefining husband and wife, redefining mom and dad. Right. 
And we play social experiments on children and they end up being the victims. That's that's the result. That's why, you know, even those kind of assurances we got this past week, oh, there's good religious liberty protections. I agree with Tim. I think he framed it right. It's an anti-religious liberty trajectory because you can't maintain religious liberty in a context in which you're redefining reality. It's impossible. It won't work. And I am not willing to trade in you know, my pot of religious liberty porridge for the well-being of children. It's just not it's just not a, a loving Christian thing to do or a right thing to do. Yeah, well said. And Tim, you know, our people virtually every Sunday say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, we could probably ferret that out a bit more and say maker and owner and orderer. Of heaven and earth. And when you start to defy the very one who created and then redeemed you, there's no way there can be wholeness and health. And so, you know, stats are not enough. I know a lot of times we were told as pastors and as people, you know, well, just share the brokenness that ensues from this way of thinking. Well, stats are not enough. And even just proclaiming fundamental truths are not enough. We need to tell the story of who we are as God, as human beings in Christ Jesus. We're the true humanists. I mean, I want people to understand that we're not, whatever happens this last couple of weeks, we don't want to run away from this. We we want to get back in there and live our lives faithfully in Christ for the sake of others. So talk again about what challenges is going to mean for God's people. I'm very glad that you uh, used that, uh, that, that idea of kind of running away because I think the political class uh, spends a lot of its time, you know, trying to, uh, to outrun crocodiles. Uh, and I think we realize that uh, that only goes so far. I'm mixing right. a metaphor with an animal, that wonderful uh, uh, word picture that Winston Churchill uses that it's very difficult, you know, uh, to negotiate with a lion when your head is in its mouth. Um, and, and this <laughs> idea that, uh, to John's point, that we can kind of play around with marriage, you know, right. that we can kind of play around definitionally. We, we will label, you know, everything a marriage, then, then nothing is a marriage. You know, at, at Focus on the Family, the, the, the really beautiful thing about Focus on the Family is that marriage and uh, family, parenting, human sanctity of human life, religious liberty, these are all of one piece. They, they, they make good sense, but they also make good policy, really good policy. Right. And, uh, and, and all of those policies that uphold the sanctity and dignity uh, of marriage and of religious liberty, you know, th- those are excellent uh, policies in the uh, short, medium, and, and long term. They're also uh, really uh, the kind of thing that our political class ought to spend more time doing. And I think uh, there is, broadly speaking, a, a real catechetical question here about first principles. What is a marriage? What is a family? Who are parents? Why are they important? We, I think we have to go tell a new generation these elemental truths because we have, unfortunately, and I say this as an inveterate optimist, but we, we have uh, a coarsened culture where part of the uh, challenge is the battle over uh, basic definitions. And we clearly saw that in the, in the Senate. We're going to see it going forward because the goal is to, uh, to reconcile the, uh, the terrible anti-religious liberty and anti-marriage legislation that passed this week with a similar bill in the House of Representatives. And we have uh, learned from uh, Pennsylvania Avenue 
that the goal uh, is to try to have uh, the president sign into legislation a permanent codification of this new definition of marriage by the end of the year. Yeah, compelling narrative. You know, what's really interesting, uh, that's what I, again, love about uh, reclaiming the dialogue, and, and especially with our own people, a compelling narrative. All this is happening at Christmas. And Christmas is ultimately about the Savior, Jesus, born into the world, but is born in a holy family, father, mother, child. And and you, then you have at the beginning of every one of the Gospels, you have all these lists of names. And, and it just the begats, the begats, the begats, because these are families that stayed together so that the promise could come to fruition and that all people could be saved. And so the, even the genealogies are rife with power and a, a narrative of hope. And yet all that stuff gets obliterated when it's just all of us on our own, having a good time and redefining our relationships as long as they last. And so, John, one last word, you know, you talk about identifying the problems and you talk about reclaiming the narrative and then you talk about action. And I think in your actions that I see in a lot of your your work uh, dealing with these waves of culture, you're really you're trying to prevent the brokenness but you're also trying to to you know deliver um this this good news and this health and wholeness even in even in the world in which we live is that have our people forgotten that that's also part of our role yeah i i think i think so i mean i think we often get kind of a narrative that the christian life is about being safe and about being nice and neither of those stacks up to holy scripture or stacks up to the history of the church and i think if you're a parent like i am talking about okay how do i help my kid have the sort of resiliency and the sort of confidence and courage they need for the you know i mean i it, it's crazy enough what they're facing today how can we even imagine what they're going to face 10 years from now 15 years from now mm-hmm. uh wh- where does that come from well look it doesn't come from avoiding these tough topics and it doesn't come from privatizing faith it comes from directly encountering and engaging the worst ideas of our culture and shining the light of the gospel and gospel truth on them and what does that mean then outside of just discipling the next generation just my responsibility as a as a dual citizen you know as right. as augustine talked about a citizen of the kingdom of man a citizen of the kingdom of god chuck colson used to often quote this that if, if the, the christians because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven should be the best citizens of the kingdom of man and uh, or the city of man um and uh, I, that is requires us when you look through history that Christians have always been at their best, not when they're running away from the plague, but when they're running into it. That's right. You know, and we can only do that if we're confident in what is true and what is good. And so that requires us to have a strong foundation in truth. It requires us to be uh, uh, courageous and unafraid to to take on whatever the culture says. And we don't compromise. We don't compromise. People, we're people of hope. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That has secured all of history, um, and it's from that framework that we've got to engage this cultural moment. You know, th- this is our calling. Yeah. We have brothers and sisters right now in Nigeria. Their calling is to face death, to face the triple threat of Boko Haram, a rejuvenated ISIS, and the Fulani herdsmen. And other times in other places, followers of Christ have had to face the challenges of their cultural moment. How do they do it? Strong foundation that Christianity is true understanding the Christian worldview, how how God defines things, and then unashamedly facing the culture to the best of our ability. And uh, ours is no different. So what yeah. what does it mean for us to be faithful today? Uh, and let's do it. Well, and like you said, engaging, engaging where and when uh, the particular wave, 
of our culture hits. Well, listen, thank you, gentlemen, both. You know, the church needs to prepare for the coming waves first by living out what we know to be true, like we've been talking about. Remember where you actually live your life too. You spend it, you know, remember who you spend your life mostly with, your kids. Go to church, ground yourself and, and your identity in the scriptural view of who you are in Christ, and then engage the people first and all around you. And then let that emanate out circle by circle. And I think you both have given us a lot to think about to do just that. So so thank you, John. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. And thank you, Tim. As always, you bring a, a whole lot of wisdom to bear on this for the sake of our church. Thanks for being here. A pleasure, a joy. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today. To get to know our LCRLDC work better, check out our website at lcrlfreedom.org. Contained there are resources to empower your public square dynamic discipleship. Or check out our weekly Word from the Center opinion piece every Friday at facebook.com forward slash LCRL freedom. Till next time, God bless you always. I'm Greg Sells. Have a great week. You've been listening to Liberty Action Alert with Greg Seltz, Executive Director of the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty in Washington, D.C. This program has been brought to you by the Lutheran Center for Religious Liberty. 